New developments in a high-profile murder. IHIT is announcing a significant update to the Bad Karen Desi homicide investigation. A shocking twist and an appeal for those who know what happened to step forward. Into the fire zone. Approximately 4,000 people have been evacuated without incident. Alberta battles a big one and BC is sending reinforcements. And staying alive. We run into this scenario often at this time of year. After two children were rescued, how to make sure search crews can find you. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Another twist in the shocking murder of 19-year-old Kieran Desi. Two members of the same family now charged in the killing. Last week, investigators announced charges against her boyfriend. And tonight, his mother is accused of being an accomplice. Nadia Stewart has more on what that means and a high hits message for the public. Nadia. Yeah, Chris, IHIT is renewing its appeal to the public. This as the mother of the accused faces a serious criminal charge. I can confirm that Manji Dio is the mother of Harja Dio. Less than two weeks after 19-year-old Kieran Desi's alleged killer is arrested, police announce another charge. Harjot's mother, 53-year-old Manjit Kaurdio, now facing the serious charge of accessory after the fact to murder. And you see these types of offenses usually happening in very close relationships. You don't see a lot of accessory after the fact charges taking place between strangers. You see them often with parents and their children, siblings, close friends. For the family of Kieran Desi. I was very surprised. The news is upsetting. They are still waiting for justice. I know the police working hard on it. The burden is now on prosecutors to prove Harjot's mother knowingly interfered with the investigative process. There has to be something connecting the person accused of the underlying crime to the, the accessory that informs them that the crime has taken place. As for police, they're calling for more people in the community to come forward, suggesting they already know who those individuals are. There are people out there. I'm not going to get into specifics of who they are. I'm not going to call them out um, right now. But those people know who they are, and they know they, they have crucial information on this investigation. Do the right thing. Come forward today. Manjit Cardio, a Surrey resident, was arrested May 17th. She'll be back in court on May 23rd. Back to you, Chris. All right, Nadia, thank you. There is new funding to fight drug-impaired driving in this province. The federal government is pledging more than $10 million to help B.C. take drivers who get behind the wheel high off the roads. Grace Key has more on how the money is expected to be used. I am pleased to announce that $10.1 million over a five-year period in federal funding will be made available to the province of British Columbia... The province is getting more money from the federal government in the battle against drug-impaired drivers. More officers will be trained in standardized field sobriety testing and as drug recognition experts. The money can also be used to purchase the controversial drug screening devices. When we went through alcohol road screening devices, there was also a, a period of, of, of learning and various devices that came forward until the police community more or less settled on one. And I think we're going through that process now. The Vancouver Police Department, as with several agencies across the country, have 
passed on the Draeger 5000 because its performance in cold weather and false positive results have been called into question. But this week, the federal government is expected to approve the Sotoxa device. It's cheaper, smaller and works faster. We are waiting for ad additional technology to be approved by the government, but we know that is in process and we're expecting new devices to be approved in short order and we will examine those devices and expect that some will meet our needs and we'll, we'll employ them in Vancouver. Instead, Vancouver's focused on training officers. By the end of the year, the department will have trained 20 drug recognition experts and 200 in standardized field sobriety testing. Despite the controversy surrounding the devices, the minister maintains it's just one tool to combat impaired drivers. It provides the police with reasonable and probable grounds to make a demand for blood tests, for drug recognition experts, or even here in the, in the province of British Columbia to take very enforcement, a very effective enforcement action with respect to license suspension and the towing of the vehicle. Within five years, the goal is to have half of the province's frontline officers trained in field sobriety testing. Grace Key, Global News. We're learning more tonight about how a provincial investigation into B.C.'s volatile gas prices will work. Keith Baldry joins us with more on the terms of reference, essentially the scope of the investigation. Mm -hmm. Keith, it seems fairly broad with one notable exception. Yeah, that notable exception being taxation, Chris. Uh, provincial taxes and federal taxes make up quite a bit of what you pay at the pump, but that's not part of the, at least right now, part of the terms of reference for the BC Utilities Commission. Here's what they're going to be tasked to do. Basically, first of all, find out why we pay what we do for gas. Examine and investigate market factors, price fluctuations, even price gouging when it comes to determining the price of gas. Also explain the refiner and retail uh, margins and how they compare to the rest of Canada. Uh, from province to province. And finally, to review the potential use of regulatory measures uh, used elsewhere. That could be quite interesting if they come back with uh, regulatory ideas on governing the determining the price of gas at the pump. Caught up to Ravi Kalon, the NDP MLA for Delta North, who says his constituents are giving an earful about this. And Jazz Johal, the VC Liberals, back to taxation. Why is that not on the table? Well, I hope that the BCUC, well, when they question the oil and gas companies and why the prices have gone up so dramatically over the last few months, that they are forthcoming and they do give them the best information that's possible. I think they owe that to the public. Uh, and, uh, and I have confidence that the uh, BCUC will do a thorough job. The provincial government at the end of the day is responsible for about 35 cents per litre. They can look at those prices. They can look at potentially rolling back the carbon tax to $30 per tonne. They can look at potentially uh, uh, eliminating some of those taxes, even temporarily. All right, what uh, kind of investigative power does the Utilities Commission have in all of this, Keith? Actually, a pretty strong one, Chris. Under the Administrative Tribunals Act, not an act we look at every day, it does give uh, bodies such as the Utilities Commission the power to compel people uh, to provide uh, witness testimony and to provide documents if that's what the request is. Now, these people can fight the Utilities Commission in court, uh, and the uh, Commission can get a court order attached to its summons, but it has widespread powers when it comes to that, and it'll be interesting if we see oil, party, oil industry executives on the witness stand uh, come the summer, and they have until August 30th to complete their work. Yeah, I think that would be interesting for a lot of people to witness that. Mm -hmm. All right. Keith Baldry in Victoria. Thanks, Keith.
A Calgary man's eight-month fight to get a transit ticket cancelled ended in disappointment today. Carl Lusawovana Nunu drove 10 hours and close to 1,000 kilometers for his day in court. Last September, he was ticketed for following his friend through the fare gates at Stadium Station. Nunu had proof that he had paid his fare, and surveillance shows the gates didn't open when he first tried to tap out. A traffic court justice found he broke the law regardless of whether he had a valid ticket, but did reduce the fine from $173 to $70. I am so disappointed. I just believe taking transit, you know, you're taking at your own risk. Because if it doesn't work well, you better know, you know, what to, what to do. Because if you don't know, you're going to end up like me, being charged and, you know, and most likely they won't even drop, you know, the case. Transit police say anyone who finds themselves in a similar situation should try a different fare gate. Look for transit staff to assist or call Compass Customer Service. The dramatic rescue of two young children who spent a chilly night alone on Burke Mountain is an important reminder for anyone who uses our network of trails. The kids were with their father when they got off trail and into trouble. Tanya Beja spoke to Search and Rescue today about the key things that should be on your checklist before heading out into the great outdoors. Well, this is the time of year British Columbians will be heading into the mountains for some hiking or biking, and search and rescue crews want people to be prepared. One of the things they recommend is to not rely on your cell phone for safety because a cell reception can be quite poor in some areas and cell phone batteries can die. What they're recommending instead is to leave behind a detailed trip plan. The number one thing more than anything else is to let somebody know what they're doing. We call it a trip plan. A trip plan doesn't have to be a four-page essay. All it needs to be is where I'm planning on going, what time I'll be home. Please call for help if I don't check in with you by that time. What we learned on Burke Mountain yesterday is that the family came across patches of snow while they were hiking, and that's part of the reason why the children and their father lost the trail and ended up falling down a ravine, down a creek bed. Search and rescue crews say that uh, right now there's still quite a bit of snow at higher elevations, so here's their advice. best decision you can make is to turn around, retrace your footsteps, and leave the trail for another day. But very often people forge ahead, and, and so they lose the trail, uh, the snow slows them down, and the next thing they know, they're having to call 911. If you are wondering what to bring into the outdoors, every search and rescue organization posts a list on their website of 10 essentials. Uh, those include things like a flashlight, food and water, an emergency shelter, a GPS device, and a fire starting kit. Those are the types of things that will help if you ever run into trouble. Tanya Beja, Global News. Today shows a striking loss in the market value of homes across all municipalities in Metro Vancouver. It will come as no surprise to homeowners in the region, many of whom have lost thousands in equity over the past 12 months. Aaron MacArthur has more on the report and a rally that's about to get underway, blaming all the new taxes for part of the losses. Aaron. 
Yeah, Sophie, tax is certainly part of the issue, but so is the general downturn in the world economy and, of course, the stress test brought in by the federal government last year. But here in B.C., the downturn has been sharper than in other jurisdictions, and people are pointing the fingers squarely at the government in Victoria. Uh, crunching the numbers today, a tax agent by the name of Paul Sullivan is reporting the B.C. housing market has lost $90 billion this year, largely in the high-end markets like here on the west side of Vancouver and over on the North Shore. But it's trickled down, too, to the average home, especially in the heavily built-up areas in Surrey and Langley. People out of pocket, tens of thousands of dollars potentially if they decide to sell today. And here's the key. Here's the key. Our homes are retirement vehicles for most of us, something to live in now, but when we come to the end of our working lives, it's an investment tool. A short-term blip is nothing more than that. So, you know, to, to, to gut a, a, a generation of their wealth, and I'm talking about all the young families that have bought homes in the past five years, under the guise of affordability and not build homes, seems like a very fair, unfair outcome on, 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 a, on a long-term investment. Well, Aaron, the taxes were supposed to soften the market, and isn't that what the public wanted, more affordable homes? Yeah, we all seem to want more affordable homes, and, and that's what the taxes were supposed to do. But according to the tax agents, those taxes are now built into the price of a home and haven't really done much to affect affordability. The other shoe to drop in all of this, of course, is supply. And developers are not providing that supply right now. Home starts are down about 30% this year. And if the supply starts to fall, the prices might take a sharp uptick sooner than we might think. Sophie. All right. The real estate roller coaster ride continues, Aaron. Thank you. Well, he sure looks like he's shopping for a new bike, but he made a bold move that surprised everybody. Thankfully, the cameras caught it. And so you can play the piano, but can you play the piano like this? We'll leave you hanging about what's going on until a little later. Right now, though, the B.C. Wildfire Service is sending dozens of firefighters to Alberta to help with a rapidly growing threat in that province. Tomorrow, a total of about 267 B.C. personnel will be deployed. That includes 230 firefighters, 10 initial attack crews and 10 unit crews, according to Wildfire BC. A paramount concern right now is the out-of-control wildfire threatening the northern Alberta town of high level. And while so far no homes have been damaged, an evacuation order is in place. And for those fleeing, it's quite the journey, around 500 kilometers to either High Prairie or Slave Lake. It's described as almost post-apocalyptic. What was once a town of 4,000, now nearly deserted after a mass evacuation. Highways in and out of high level are closed. With the exception of firefighting crews and three determined holdouts, the northern Alberta town and a nearby First Nation community are empty. Mother Nature has her own ways of doing things and we danced with the devil a little too long and uh, we just decided, you know what, that's it. We're getting the people out of here. Several hundred evacuees packed up their vehicles for an exhaustive five-hour journey to Slave Lake. Most drove through the middle of the night, arriving at the reception center. I think the shock is working in now because I'm pretty shaky right now. The people in Slave Lake have some experience with this kind of disaster planning. In 2011, fire ripped through, destroying a third of the town. We gained a ton of experience from uh, 2011. 
in regards to how to manage emergencies, how to communicate with people. Uh, we've done a, t uh, a ton of extensive training um, on how to assist other communities with this. And there's some comfort in that. Gives you a better outlook on life, like on what might happen, and kind of hopeful. And hope is what they're leaning on. With the out-of-control wildfire rated at the highest possible danger, the worry is there. The whole town is surrounded in sprinklers and crews are creating fire barriers along the highways. So far, no homes have been destroyed. The fire is within three kilometers of the town. It becomes uh, something that you can't put manpower on uh, directly on the edges. So we have to use uh, uh, indirect attacks, so air tankers uh, along the flanks. The size of it has swelled to almost 80,000 hectares. On the fire intensity scale of one to six, the high-level fire is currently assessed to be a six, meaning that the fire is jumping from crown to crown of trees. But more reinforcements are on the way. Crews from Ontario, Nova Scotia and British Columbia are expected to arrive on Wednesday. Jill Croteau, Global News. Back in this province now, we've experienced back-to-back record-setting wildfire seasons in 2017 and 2018, and many people in B.C. are still recovering. Two years ago, more than 60,000 residents were forced to flee their homes as fire ravaged communities near 108 Mile. Sarah McDonald returned there to see how they're coping and hear their big plans to rebuild. Two years after one of the most destructive wildfires in provincial history forced its evacuation. This community of some 2,500 people in the South Caribou region is getting a multi-million dollar facelift. We had the fires, it was devastating. We're recovering, and I want to still say we still are recovering, but our people are very resilient. 108 Mile Ranch is poised to receive a major injection of private and public funds to the tune of more than $20 million as it positions itself to rebuild as a major player in the province's tourist industry. Its local airport is looking at a $6.3 million upgrade. Hey, last year we had 5,600 aircraft movements at this airport. 55 of them were medevacs. With seven figures in capital projects planned on the grounds of this resort, including a $3 million clubhouse and a conference centre. A major turnaround for its owners, who took ownership just days before the 5,700-hectare Gustafson fire wreaked havoc on the region. Tens of thousands of acres of land were impacted. The owners of the resort donated rooms for emergency services staff and demonstrated their commitment to the community. And we'll face out over the view. A $6 million, 36-unit seniors housing complex is also being built by a local private developer. People love to retire here, but they don't really think of what happens in 10 years. So this will allow us to remain a nice retirement town and offer greater services to those who wish to retire here. With the Ministry of Transportation committing long-awaited funding of more than $2 million to resurfacing 16 kilometers of roadway. But the looming fear for so many in this region remains, and that's the threat of yet another wildfire. Oh, the addition of new fire brakes and engines and crew members all put in place in time for yet another wildfire season. As the 108 puts itself back on the map. Sarah McDonald, Global News, 108 Mile Ranch, B.C. Caught on video, an apparent brazen theft from a Victoria bicycle shop shared as a warning to other businesses. It happened last Friday about 11 in the morning. A man browsing in the shop simply rolls a bike out the door. Well, the manager on duty heard the door chime and heard part of the bike bang against the door and chase the alleged thief down the street. He was able to get the $1,100 bike back, but the suspect ran off. Several tips have come in, though, and police are investigating. 
Yeah, we uploaded it to our Facebook and it got some pretty good traction, so we got lots of tips from that. We've changed up the way that the bikes are locked up front, which is good, so there's no more, you know, you can't really do the same thing you did again, but we're constantly like, whenever problems like this arise, we try to fix it so it doesn't happen again. Now, she's fighting the District of North Vancouver over the expropriation of her home to make way for a highway expansion, but she lost her court battle. As Catherine Urquhart reports, Juwana Hanlon now has 10 days to vacate her home. Juwana Hanlon returns to her North Vancouver home following a devastating morning in Supreme Court. How did it go in court? A judge has ordered the 64-year-old to vacate her home by 1 p.m. on May 31st. Can you tell us how it The senior's house is being expropriated for the $198 million Lower Lynn Interchange project. She was told in November she had four months to vacate. That date came and went, with Hanlon hoping the courts would give her more time. It's hard to move and to prepare papers, especially when you don't know exactly what's expected of you in the court or which forms to use, etc. But now North Vancouver District has won its court injunction against Hanlon. The judge only asking the district to provide Hanlon with $1,400 for one week's accommodation, a decision that left the homeowner frustrated. Not interested to respond to your questions. Government is able to expropriate property at market value, which in this case is $1.75 million. Hanlon maintained she was owed more. With just 10 days to vacate, the North Vancouver woman at least appears ready to start packing. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Spring and summer are peak painting seasons among do-it-yourself weekend warriors. And now there's a way to share and use up any that's left over. Meteorologist Christy Gordon is at Science World tonight with more on the upcycled paint exhibit and what it all means. Christy? Thanks so much, you too. Yeah, so it's a really neat uh, uh, new art exhibit here that's opening night. Everyone enjoying the uh, opening uh, session here. It's Jan de Beers. He's a local artist from Gibson who has used completely 100% upcycled paint. And uh, it's highlighting a new program that a lot of people can take part in. Uh, to talk a little bit more about this program is Mark Kirshner. He's the president of Product Care Recycling. Now, uh, you're a nonprofit organization that has been doing paint chair programs for 25 years. First, let's just tell everyone at home, what is upcycled paint for starters? Okay, so product care recycling, it's a not-for-profit, and uh, we run a program where we take leftover paint from anybody. Uh, they, want, they bring it in. Uh, but what we do is we take the best quality paint out of the paint that's brought in, and we've got 150 locations around the province, and anybody can come in, and pick the paint they want and take it away for free, no charge. So, And what could people do with this paint? Like how good is, is the actual paint? It's very good quality paint uh, and you can do whatever you need to do with it. Um, a lot of people use it for uh, painting a wall at home, painting a fence, uh, even painting a barn. Uh, what's very special is what uh, is happening here tonight. Jan de Beers used it to paint real painting, so that's what we're really impressed about. 
And people can do that at home. Keeps it out of landfills. Keeps it out of our waterways as well. Uh, thanks so much, Mark. You can get more information about where you can either drop off paint or pick up paint at productcare.org or come and see this lovely artwork here at Science World. It's free with your admission and the program or the exhibit is on right through until August. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. It's a great Back idea. to you guys. Great cool program. Thanks, Christy. Mm -hmm. Dramatic video now. Check out the top of the screen where you can just barely see a woman fighting to stay alive, clinging on to branches in Oklahoma floodwaters. Firefighters scramble to get to her before her strength gives out and she's carried away. Luckily, they did reach her in time and they managed to pull her to safety with a rope. Oklahoma is struggling with flash floods from torrential rain brought on by storms and tornadoes. The Canadian government has sent a high-level delegation to China to press for the release of two Canadians who've been charged by Chinese officials with espionage. Businessman Michael Spaver and former diplomat Michael Kovrig were picked up separately in December, shortly after Canada arrested Huawei Technologies executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver. She faces extradition to the United States. Federal Justice Minister David Lametti was in B.C. today and he reiterated Canada's position that the arrests and charges are unwarranted and arbitrary. That's the message that they're getting uh, from us. They're getting that from our allies uh, and, and, and the, other, uh, the other people that Minister Freeland in particular has, uh, has marshaled in support of that. Um, the high-level delegation with, with Rob Oliphant is, is, another, is another step uh, in, in trying to uh, convince uh, Chinese authorities that these people have done nothing wrong. The Alaskan air carrier that was involved in a deadly mid-air collision last week that killed six has voluntarily suspended operations again. That's after a second crash of a Taiwan Airlines plane on Monday that killed the pilot and one passenger. When rescue teams reached the wreckage... A look at the engine. The small float plane was submerged in the frigid waters off Alaska's Annette Island. Ooh. The pilot and a 31-year-old passenger killed. Sarah Luna was an epidemiologist. Before the trip, she posted about her excitement for her first float plane flight. Sadly, I was able to see them pulling the people out. The seaplane operated by Taquan Air, making this the second crash involving the small airline in less than a week, and the third within a year. Six were killed just last week when a Taquan Air flight collided with a float plane operated by Mountain Air. The weather conditions um, can get bad in a hurry. Last July, passengers on board another Taquan Air flight in Alaska were seriously injured when its pilot became disoriented in bad weather and crashed into the side of a mountain. Today, with the NTSB on scene, Taquan has voluntarily suspended operations after another tragedy in the air and few answers as to why. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. Well, just in time for beach season, officials in Connecticut are investigating a very rare great white shark sighting in Long Island Sound. The nearly 10-foot-long shark called Cabot was first tagged last fall off Nova Scotia and was seen off the coast of North Carolina days before heading to the Long Island Sound. The tracker pinged four times just off Greenwich, the first time the shark has ever appeared there. Researchers say Cabot has logged nearly 6,500 kilometers since he was first tagged in October, swimming as far south as Florida. 
In Health Matters tonight, the NDP government showed off one of its $10 per day prototype daycare centers today. But the Liberal opposition says the government is still falling short on its promises. Minister of State for Child Care Katrina Chen visited Heritage Park Child Care Center in Mission, one of 53 centers across B.C. that were selected for the $10 per day program. I think we're learning at this moment and see how the result is like, and then we're going to be able to look at all of our initiatives, so prototype site, affordable childcare benefit, the non-income tested fee reduction, and see what's the best way to uh, run universal childcare system. Liberal childcare critic Lori Thronis says the $2,500 $10 spaces represent just 2% of the total spaces in B.C., and he points out that they're not new spaces, just converted from existing spots. Sesame Street has introduced a new character designed to teach children about another sometimes unfortunate part of growing up. <sighs> She's having a hard time, Elmo, but we're here for her. Uh, we're her for now, parents. Elmo's new friend, Carly, is a foster child living with her for now parents, or foster parents, Dahlia and Clem. Dahlia explains to Elmo that sometimes mommies and daddies need help caring for their children and that she and Clem are keeping Carly safe until her mother can take care of her again. One of BC's busiest wildlife rescue groups, Langley's Critter Care, is dealing with a boom in orphaned babies. Problem is, a lot of them shouldn't be there. Linda Aylesworth tells us why it's happening and what you should do if you think you found an orphaned animal. Springtime is always busy season at Critter Care in Langley, but this year they're receiving record numbers of wild babies in need. It's really busy. This year we're already at, I believe it's 556, so that's uh, about 125 animals over what we were at this time last year. There are several reasons why this might be. For one, loss of habitat to development. So when raccoons or skunks or squirrels need a place to den, they move in. The property owner's response? They either handle it themselves by trapping and relocating the parents or the mum, um, or they hire a company to do so, and then days later discover that, oh, there was babies in the area. <laughs> it's a different matter where deer are concerned. In the last two days, Critter Care has received five fawns, some legitimately in need of rescue. This guy and his brother were found wandering around together, um, crying, looking for mom, which is a bit unusual for fawns. Others orphaned by good Samaritans meaning to do the right thing when they should have let it be. If it's curled up, laying low, leave it alone. Don't touch it. Mum will come back for it. And then there are these little guys, baby possums. So their mother um, actually came in severely injured. Um, and then when we looked in her pouch, we noticed that she had some babies. As is so often the case, the mother was hit by a car. But the possum's pouch is so well insulated that the babies, known as joeys, can survive the blow. So if you see one on the side of the road, if you're comfortable enough, check the pouch, see if there's babies and you can bring them into us. Or call Critter Care whenever you're concerned about wildlife, just to be sure you're causing no harm. And while you're at it, give a donation. Baby season has just begun, and feeding all these hungry mouths isn't cheap. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. An unlikely concert in Switzerland after the forecast. Why the fact it's at a construction site isn't even the strangest thing about it.
Right now, though, we'll check in again with Christy Gordon, who's down at Science World for an event. And, yeah, that sun came out this afternoon. It was beautiful. Yeah, in that sunshine, it was almost humid in some areas, feeling really hot. Before we talk about our weather, I just want to let you know, we just got a word from Environment Canada. They've issued a special air quality statement for the Fort Nelson region, and it's because of the fires in Alberta. They are expecting poor air quality and reduced visibility in areas like Fort Nelson, right down to Fort St. John, for the next several days, likely. So we'll keep you up to date on that, but that's what we're looking at for uh, that region. Now, for the Lord mainland yes it was a beautiful day today we saw a fair amount of blue sky but boy there were some dark clouds out there there are your temperatures 17 to 22 degrees and uh, when we look at the radar imagery there was quite a cell that traveled over the sunshine coast with lightning there that's moving across vancouver island right now and we have some lightning strikes in through the central interior and caribou region as well that's going to ease off overnight tomorrow a beautiful day on the way although we do still have some daytime heating meaning a chance of showers or an isolated thunderstorm in the afternoon from the BC Peace River area right through the central interior, Caribou extending into areas like Merritt, Whistler and even into the Fraser Valley but it really should be a nice day. These would just be an isolated pocket here and there but of course as we always uh, hear or see sometimes those pockets can be pretty intense at while they last. So there's your five day forecast everyone. Tomorrow a uh, mix of sun and cloud. We'll see highs ranging from 21 to 23 degrees. Beautiful day on Thursday also Friday's the one blip we'll see a little bit more cloud cooler temperatures but it looks like we rebound for the weekend uh, great event down here at Science World highlighting local artist Jan De Beers and of course the paint share program that happens and that anyone can take part in as a lot of fun I'll see you in a little bit though I'll be back all right sounds good thank you Christy Construction and music came together in Switzerland as about 200 people gathered for a very unusual performance Pianist Alain Roche gave an airborne performance dangling from a crane over the future site of a hospital parkade. The crane operator was actually part of the act. Roche says his art is a kind of poetry confronting two universes, classical piano and a dusty construction site. <laughs> Fascinating. It's hard enough to play the piano. I know. Do you really need to do it hanging upside down over a construction site? What have you got, sports maestro? Well, quite a bit of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to talk about golf technology. Okay. Oh, All right, Squire's right. back uh, with sports. We love the West Coast, but it does have its challenges in pro sports, doesn't it? You're a little far away from everything. Yeah. True. That's the problem. You live at the other end of the street. Uh, the Whitecaps have lived the life of a flight crew of late. Last Wednesday, they were home, taking on Atlanta. Then on Saturday, they were in Kansas City. Tomorrow, they're in New York to play the Red Bulls. And it's a home game Saturday against Dallas. So they are piling up the air miles. Uh, now, they aren't the only team that, of course, has to play a condensed schedule in Major League Soccer. But they are the one, as we said, that piles up the most miles because they live in beautiful Vancouver, B.C. And it means changing the lineup constantly to give guys rest. Tomorrow's game will also see a few regulars out with injuries, like Daniil Henry, who has a hamstring problem. Neil for sure is out. Uh, Jordi Reyna, Lass, uh, they're all out for this game. Uh, we're following up and it's kind of day-to-day -day with Felipe and John. Um, but hopefully Lass and Jordi 
could be a possibility for the game against Dallas, but it's still a question mark. All they have to do is win tonight, and the Blues are in the Stanley Cup final against Boston. San Jose, the opposition, first goal of the game. That's a tip by David Perron, and St. Louis is off and running. It's 1-0. Then on the power play, Vladimir Tarasenko with the big shot. 3-1 now late in the second for St. Louis. San Jose is going to need another miracle to stay alive. Game four, Bucks raptors Raptors won in double overtime to make it a 2-1 series. Watch the uh, will by Serge Ibaka here. You have to have talent to win in the NBA. You also have to have the want. You want the ball more than the other guy. Another example from Ibaka. Fight for the ball. Get it. Dunk it. Nice. Up by 10 at halftime, the Raptors are. Canada, U.S. That's Jack Hughes. Didn't get in the game today for the Americans. They held him out. Preliminary round still. Quarterfinals on Thursday. That's a nice pass. Mark Stone to Pierre-Luc Dubois. That made it 1-0 for the Canadians against the U.S. Then, Kyle Turris, 2-on-1 with Anthony Mantha. 2-0. Every man in the audience will now have sympathy pains. Watch Dylan Larkin. This shot is a rocket from the point. Ay, ay, ay. Way too close, way too hard, way too painful. Oh, that's uh, Quinn Hughes watching Dylan Larkin fall in front of him. Uh, he left after that, of course. Uh, we'll see if he's okay. We hope he is. Jared McCann, the former Canuck draft pick, perhaps foolishly traded off. 3-0 uh, Canada wins. So quarterfinals, and Canada's road to the gold is pretty good now because they will play the winner of the Czech-German game. They'll take on Switzerland, U.S., Russia, Sweden, and Finland. Why can professional golfers hit golf balls further than ever before? Is it something at the snack shack in the hot dogs? Is it weightlifting? Perhaps it's the equipment. Yes, I believe it's that. The equipment has certainly changed. The golf balls are better, as are the clubs. Golf equipment manufacturers do the same kind of R&D that the military does to make their weapons launch with more distance and more accuracy. Strap yourself in. Oh, that's it hard. Very few of us will ever come within 100 yards close to how far Dustin Johnson hits it, but on tour, everyone takes it deep off the tee. According to the PGA Tour, last year the entire field averaged close to 300 yards in driving distance. That's just plain obscene. Has the driver been the biggest change for the game or the golf ball? That seems to be the, the, the argument. I, mean, I, I, I think the, the, the driver. I mean, the golf ball, obviously, with the distance that it goes, but they've compensated and lengthened the golf courses. You know, I, I, to me, it's all the driver's the big thing. The shot of the day came on the 630-yard long 17th, the hole they said nobody could possibly reach in two. Not now, not Ever, but then John Daly teed it up. Two decades ago, John Daly was the first golfer to average over 300 yards. Grip it and rip it became golf's new mantra. Power and distance on the golf course replacing finesse and creativity. Well, even upside down, that reads like a monster drive. Back in the day, um, I think back to say Nick Faldo's days, a golf swing was really geared more around an iron swing because the driver was not very forgiving. I mean, first of all, if you had a great driver, you didn't want to overuse it in case you cracked it, you know, being the persimmon driver. Nowadays, I mean, the driver is such that it is very forgiving. Players are going at it 110%. Yeah. 
Maybe. Yes, sir! That's not to say the game's greatest players weren't doing the same back in their day. It's just the variables surrounding the game have drastically changed, be it course conditions, equipment, and especially technology. They would have hit a golf ball probably 30 or 40 yards farther. They, the other thing is the, the products now, ball, clubs, are tested to a way higher degree. The manufacturing tolerances are way different. So the consistency from product to product, whether it's a driver, a set of irons, a putter, a golf ball, a glove, anything, uh, is totally different. So they, my guess, would be, have been dramatically better. On the left edge with that. <laughs> it's getting harder to blame the equipment I, now, Squire. I know, I know, I know. But I still like to because I really hate to blame myself. <laughs> Even though I'm the one to blame. That's right. All right, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Here's Andrea now with a preview of Global News at 11 tonight, Anne. Thanks, Chris. And we are in Kamloops this evening where the Prime Minister is officially declaring former B.C. Cabinet Minister Terry Lake as the Liberal candidate in the Kamloops-Thompson-Caribou riding. Also, police are investigating a frightening incident on Vancouver Island. A woman was pushed off a 40-foot cliff at Thetis Lake by a group of women she didn't know. The woman was injured but able to swim to shore. Those stories and more coming up tonight at 11 o'clock. Well, the auto racing world is remembering the man who made one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. Formula One legend Nicky Lauda has died at the age of 70. But as Donna Friesen reports, one of racing's worst crashes almost killed him 43 years ago. Nicky Lauda was built for speed and thrived on adrenaline. Taking challenges, taking risks. He was a Formula One world champion three times, twice for Ferrari and once for McLaren. But it was his astonishing comeback from a fiery crash in 1976 that is still legendary. It nearly killed him. He had third-degree burns, had inhaled toxic fumes, and went into a coma. Everyone thought he was finished. Climbed back into the cockpit. But within 40 days, Lauda was back on the track. And you just fight with your with the brain. You hear noises and you hear voices and you just try to listen what they're saying and you try to keep your brain working. His comeback still described as one of the most courageous acts of any sportsman and was made into a Hollywood movie. He once admitted he learned more from losing than from winning. I'd like to dedicate this award to the losers because I tell you from my own experience, winning is one thing, but out of losing, I always learned more. Lauda retired from racing in 1979, but remained a part of the F1 family as a manager and mentor. Congratulations, man. Director Ron Howard, who met Lauda on the set of Rush, wrote today, the F1 world knows of his grit and intensely competitive spirit, but that matched with his keen intelligence and wisdom made him a distinctively remarkable man, a force. And a, and a butt that could feel anything wrong with the car. In the, in the movie Rush, when he was in the car with his, what was going to be his wife, she was saying, there's something wrong with your car. And he goes, I have a pretty good head, but I have a very good butt and I can feel everything. <laughs> That's a good skill. Comes in handy. Uh, should we check in one more time with Christy uh, down at Science World tonight? Christy? 
Thanks, Chris. You know, it's been really neat learning about this new uh, paint share program. It's with productcare.org. There's over 150 locations all around BC. It's a nonprofit organization. It's free for you to drop off paint so that it doesn't go into the landfill or for you to pick up paint if you have a DIY project. Pretty neat program, that's for sure. Okay, back uh, to you. I got a few cans I could get rid of. Thanks very much, Christy. Some DIY work at the Galas. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that cool. Projects that didn't quite get finished. <laughs> all right, that's all the time we have this evening. Thanks for joining us. Have a good night, all. Have a good night.